My wife announced this past week uh, that we are not having turkey for Thanksgiving this year, so pray for her. She's walked away from the faith. Uh, that's what that means. I'm for real, we're not having turkey. That's what she said. Like, I don't even know what to do with this. She said, well, you, we can have turkey. Uh, if you want to wake up at 5 a.m. on Thursday and start cooking, you're more than welcome to have turkey. And I was like, honey baked ham it is, right? So that's what it's going to be. A guy in my youth, my, my life group, his name is uh, Kevin. Kevin, uh, he texted me a picture of a can of Spam. And he said, at least be thankful this isn't what your wife is serving you on Thanksgiving. But we are having honey baked ham. I do love honey baked ham. But then a life group on Friday night, she announced casually in front of everybody as though this was a, a, a mutually agreed upon decision that we're also not having, <laughs> we're not having mashed potatoes. Oh my gosh. Like, I couldn't, like, it's not Thanksgiving without mashed potatoes. Like, I, oh my God. Pray, pray for my wife. Seriously, I don't know what she's going through. Like, she's wandering in the desert of her spirituality. Right? Let's pray, dear God, bring her out, right, of the wilderness and bring this woman back home to faith. I don't know. Like, no turkey, no. Like, I don't know. Next, she's going to say, and there's no Christmas tree this year either. She didn't say that because she is a Christian. She's a follower of Jesus. We've got to have a tree in the house, just like the Druids did. Um, which is a weird, I don't know where that tradition came from and should have even brought any of that up. That just made us all start. Doesn't matter. Anyway, I got ADD if you haven't, if you can't tell already. Anyway, um, but she did announce we're not having uh, 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 mashed potatoes either. Uh, but uh, she said I could go to uh, KFC and get mashed potatoes if I want. And I will say that KFC has the second best mashed potatoes in the world, uh, behind my wife's homemade mashed potatoes, which apparently I'll never be able to eat again. Uh, so it'll be, it'll be a KFC Thanksgiving for me, for me this year. Uh, but all of our kids are going to be here for Thanksgiving, uh, which is great. My daughter's a nurse, and she's on the bottom of the totem pole, so she has to work on Christmas Day, so she, they're not in that week, so she can't come home for Christmas. Uh, but she is off on Thanksgiving, so everybody's getting together. We're having our, what do you call it? Th- uh, you call it Thanksmas? right? That's what everybody says. Thanks, Miss, if it's your Thanksgiving and Christmas rolled into one. So that's going to be our week. So we have, we have a lot to be thankful for. Hope you do also. I, I believe you do. Uh, how many of you guys know somebody who's grumpy all the time? Raise your hand uh, if you know somebody who's grumpy all the time. Keep your hand up if you're sitting next to that person right now. So I said that last night, right? Raise your hand if you know somebody who's grumpy. And there was a couple right here on the front row sitting right here on the corner. And, uh, you know, he's not participating at all. He's like, I don't even know what I'm doing in church. Like, I freaking hate this. He's not really. He's a nice guy, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, just, he definitely was the grumpy. And I said, keep your hand up uh, if you're sitting next to that grumpy person right now. And she kept her hand up. And I looked over, and that dude actually had, like, a grumpy face on. It was hilarious. <laughs> I wanted to take a picture of them and show it to everybody, but I was afraid he was bigger than me. I don't want to mess with him. But some of us know people that are grumpy. We, we've had, there's characters in our lives that are grumpy all the time. I had a football coach, and he, he I don't know, he, he like had an aversion to words of affirmation. He could never, he didn't, you know, great job, Sean, hustling up to the line. It was, you didn't fire off the line fast enough, or, you know, you, you missed your coverage, or we're in zone, what are you doing covering them man-to-man, and, or... Um, you, I don't, what, you know, whatever. It's, it's just always the negative, the negative, the negative, the negative, the negative. We all, we all know people that are like super negative all the time. Coaches are like this. I, I think, and I think other professions tend to draw people like that. Uh, and I know we have cops in our church, but traffic cops, they seem to be grumpy all the time. I don't think I've ever had a traffic cop walk up to my window and say, hey man, how you doing? You doing all right? I hope you have a good day there, bud, right? Like, cheer up, man. This is a good day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Like, I've never had a traffic cop be anything but grumpy. Even the ones that let me go, they let me go in a mean way. Like, like they ne- they're never like cheerful people. We, we, all, we all have people like this in our, in our lives. Uh, there's, a, there's a metaphor for this with a glass of water, right? The glass is either half what? It- <laughs> half of you guys said full, half of you guys said empty. I already know who you are. It's either half full or half empty. And uh, the idea, if you're not familiar with the metaphor, is that if, if you got a half a glass of water, it is either half full if you're optimistic or half empty if you're pessimistic. My wife says it's half empty if you're just real, 
realistic about things. And it's half full if you're a dreamer, right? If you got your heads, your head in the clouds. Uh, she's, she is, the, she is the realist. She's, she's not the glasses half empty kind of person. We're, we've, we've kind of met kind of in the middle, but the, and, and, and I think some of us would say, well, it doesn't really matter whether it's half empty or half full because you, you've, it's a half a glass of water anyway. But what I want to show you is that I think your view toward the amount of water in your glass uh, really does matter. Um, because there are times in your life where your, uh, your, 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 your cup is running over. Do you remember that movie Hope Floats with Harry Connick Jr. and Sandra Bullock and the best little actress in the entire world who never did another movie? Anybody remember, anybody remember Hope Floats? Remember the scene when her daddy leaves her and she's in the cul-de-sac and she's crying? Daddy, don't leave me. Oh my gosh, I'm about to cry right now just remembering that scene. That is the best single scene in the history of cinematography. I just want you to know. Like if you watch Hope, Rent Hope Floats or Amazon it or Netflix it, Hulu, Hulu, Hulu it, Peacock it, Paramount it. Holy crap, everybody's charging us for everything. Somebody's going to bundle all of these different things together and we're going to reinvent cable is what's going to happen. <laughs> Because right now, they just kind of separate everything up. Uh, in, in any case, uh, in, in that scene, the little girl, she's bawling, man, because her dad is, is leaving her and her mom. And uh, oh, it's a terrific scene, and, and uh, it's, it's a heartbreaking scene. But at the end of the movie, the little girl is holding hands with her grandmother, and they're walking through. I think it's an amusement park. It's been a long time since I've seen it. And she looks up at her grandma, and she said, Grandma, and she says, my cup runneth over. And then that's the end of the movie. And you're like, oh my word, that is so beautiful, right? Um, and if you guys haven't seen the movie, I just lost you for the last minute and a half right there. But, but the idea is that there are some times where there's so much water in our cup, we're just oh, like, it's just like, I wish my life could feel like this forever. And then there's other times in our life where it just feels like, man, I, like it, it ain't bone dry, but dang it. Like I, there's just, I don't think I could get anything out of it if you turned me upside Side down, and uh, your attitude, and, and we go through seasons where there's there's a lot of water in the glass, and we go through seasons where there's not much water in the glass. But your attitude towards however much water you do have in the glass, I think, affects your relationship with God. I, like I think it has a direct connection to the quality of your your spiritual your spiritual health. I also think that 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 has a, an impact on your relationships with other people. Uh, there's also a study I'm going to tell you about right now that it even has an impact on your physical health. There was a, a PhD, a doctor from University of California and a doctor from a PhD guy uh, from the University of Miami who collaborated on a study. They had all these subjects uh, that volunteered to be in this study, uh, both sides of the country, maybe some other places in between. I didn't, there's an abstract that you can read of it and just kind of read that summary, uh, right? But I didn't get into the, all of the stuff about the study, but they divided the participants into, into three groups. And the first third, uh, and there was a 10-week study, 10 weeks. So every night for 10 weeks, uh, the first third had to write down all the things that happened that day that they could be thankful for. Like, what went right about today? Just write down the things that went right, the things that you have to be thankful for. Like, what, what did you appreciate? Moments of, of, just, of just awesomeness from that day. Right? Write all of that down. They didn't tell them how long the list was supposed to be, but they just said, make a list of all the great things that happened that day. The second third, they said, we want you to write down, they didn't say the things to complain about, they didn't flavor the study, but they said, we want you to write down all the things that could have gone better, all of the things that went sideways, the things that, that didn't go right but maybe could have. We want you to make a list of all of the stuff uh, basically to complain about is essentially what that list was without, without telling them that. Just write down all the stuff that didn't go right, and they had to do this every single day for 10 weeks. And then the third group was like the control group, right? They didn't give them any instructions. They just said, we just want you to write down the events from the day that stand out to you, positive or negative. They just had to make that list. And, and what they found was that, that at the end of 10 weeks, that first group turned out completely different, as you might imagine, from either of the other, other two groups. Uh, the first group, after 10 weeks of writing down every single day, things that happened during that day that they could be thankful for, things that went great that day, they found that those people were more physically active and as a group had more less, they had less, more less, they had more of the less, they had less sick days uh, than either of the other two groups. Uh, they had lower levels of fatigue and inflammation. Uh, they had less anxiety, uh, less depression. 
They had an, their increased, they had increased, okay, I'm not a doctor. We actually have a doctor in the service. I just, I just saw him in here, so I might say this wrong and I'm embarrass myself, but I'm gonna have to read it. Increased activity in the anterior cingulate cortex and medial prefrontal cortex. Come on, I said that pretty fast. That's pretty good. Been practicing that one. Meaning that there was an increased positive and supportive attitude towards others and they experienced relief from stress. Uh, as a result, they had a natural, they had natural immunity uh, towards the things that they had identified before the study as being stressful in their life at the end of 10 weeks. Uh, the effect three months later, uh, by the way, was that they were more psychologically protective. In adolescence, there was an inverse correlation with bullying victimization, meaning that they didn't feel like they were, they didn't act like victims any longer, uh, and they had a lower risk of suicide or suicidal tendencies or behaviors. Uh, the effects on brain function on a chemical level and its practice promoted feelings of self-worth and compassion towards others. This is three months later, three months after they had done this study or after they had done this experiment. Their openness and willingness to experience gratitude affected not only the individual, but had positive effects on his or her interpersonal relationships as well. Basically, people who made a conscious choice to focus on all of the things their intentional choice to focus on the water that they did have in the glass, not the water that was missing from the glass, ended up giving them a better life than the life they had before they started focusing on the water that was in the glass in the first place. Basically, grateful people are happier people. I don't know if we needed science to prove that to us. We kind of know that intuitively, but there's actually physical benefits to you making a... And, and here's the thing. I think that we think... I think that we think... I think that we think, there we go, that's, that's the right way to say it, um, that grateful people are just wired to be uh, happier. And, and I, I, I just think that they're, I, I think any of us uh, can, everybody, even the grumpy people in the room, could take out a composition notebook from Walgreens for $1.49, and tonight before you go to bed, make a list of all the things that you have from today to be grateful for. Like every single one of us could actually start putting more attention on the water that we do have in the glass. And according to this actual study, 10 weeks from now, you will end up being a like, significantly different, healthier, better person. This impacts your relationships with other people, as the study showed, your physical health, yourself, but it also has an impact on your relationship with God. And I wanna show you three things about your attitude of gratitude. It rhymes, so it must be true. Right, when preachers start rhyming, you know the Holy Spirit's moving. That's all I got to say. Right? Some of those guys are better at it than others. Uh, right? But uh, uh, the first thing is this, that, that gratitude is an antidote. That's what it is. Gratitude is an antidote. This is the first thing I want you to know. What happens when I'm not grateful? When I'm not grateful for the things that I do have, the water that is in my glass, when I'm not thankful, when I'm not grateful uh, for my marriage, you know what I start doing? I start focusing on everybody else's marriage. That's what I start doing. I start wishing that I had married somebody like the person you married, right? It's not saying I wish I married your wife. What I'm saying is that like, like when I'm not grateful for the marriage that I do have, I start focusing on how awesome everybody else's marriage is. Like I follow them on Instagram. Their marriages are perfect, right? Like I see them on Facebook. They have perfect kids. Their kids are amazing. Everything goes great for them. Like when I'm not, when I'm not grateful for my marriage, I, I focus on everybody else's marriage. Now let me ask, uh, when I'm not grateful for my marriage, and you do this too, we start comparing our marriage to everybody else's marriage, and everybody else's marriage looks better than our marriage. Every, everybody who's ever been married, some of you guys are like, we're engaged, that'll never happen to us. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Get him, Tiger. You're right. You're right. Your marriage is going to be perfect. For the rest of us, though, we suck, apparently. Uh, but when, we, when, when, we're, when we're not grateful for the marriage that we do have and we start focusing on other people's marriages and how great those are in comparison to ours, does that help our marriages become healthy or does it make them more unhealthy? Right? And then we get into that little spiral and we can't control it. And we get, right? Some of you guys have you've gotten stuck in that little vortex of negativity and you just can't seem to come out of it. And you just keep going closer and closer toward the, toward the drain. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And then, and then the less gratitude you're actually able to find, like the quicker you begin to sink is, is what ends up happening. When I'm not thankful for what I have, uh, I spend all my time looking at everything everybody else has is what I end up doing. And that I can't be grateful that I have a house uh, with, because, 
because I, I went to your house. And then, now, now, like, I'm th- we, we own our own home. And some of you guys are like, well, I'd like to own my own home. You have a lot to be thankful for. Yeah, but my home was built in 1919. It's got knob and tubing wire and horsehair plaster. And the plaster on Ryan's ceiling is about to fall down and kill him. Right? Like, that's, and you're like, I'd just like to have a house. And I'm like, well, I have a house, but I hate my house because I have plaster that's old and it needs to be replaced with sheetrock. Right? And so that's, that's, that's what we... We stop being thankful, and I start focusing on everything everybody else has. And then what ends up happening is, in, 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 that, in that regard, is I stop being faithful with what I do have, and I kind of pull myself out of the race and go, well, I would do more if I had more, but I don't have more, so I'm not going to do anything, is what we do. But the Scripture says that if you're faithful with little, then maybe you'll be faithful with much. But if you're unfaithful with little, you, you definitely will be unfaithful with with, with much. So God's not going to give you more opportunity if you scorn. I, I wish I was born to a family with all those connections. And then because you didn't get that, you're not grateful for what you do have, right? You, you get into this negative pattern of thinking and you stop leveraging what opportunities you do have and you never get any more. And you become the reason why you sit at the dead end, right, of a one-way street and you, you've, you can't find a way out of it. When I'm not thankful for who I am, I wish I was more like you is what I do, and that, that becomes than, than you and other people and how beautiful their lives are, how beautiful they physically are, or how funny they are, or how much I suck is what it ends up being, and, and I get stuck in this, this negative cone of darkness is what ends up happening in my heart, and that's how it has this like, like seriously negative spiritual impact uh, on me. It, it negatively impacts my relationship with God because then what I do is then I go to God and I say, why didn't you give me parents like that? Why didn't you bless me with looks like that? Why didn't you give me that personality? And then, and then honestly, I take all, like, not even looking at all of the stuff that God did give me. I'm looking at all the stuff he doesn't and rather than being thankful for what he did, I almost curse him because of what he didn't. Right? That, that's, where, that's where we go. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this in chapter 3, verse 16 of his letter to the church. He said, forever there is jealousy and selfish ambition. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. And, and I think the more we have access to the highlight reels in everybody else's life, the more likely we are to experience jealousy. He says, that's where you're going to find a person whose life is out of order. That's where you'll find, that's when you're going to find somebody who begins to prioritize things inappropriately in their life. That's what you're going to find. You'll find disorder there and you'll find all kinds of evil of, of all other, of every kind in, in the heart of a person who's like that. And I, I've experienced that. It's my lack of gratitude. And I think jealousy is the opposite of gratitude, right? Like it's, it's a, I wish that I had, it's not I'm grateful that I have. It's I wish that I had is what that is. And, and, it, and, it, and it rearranges my life in, the, in, in a way that perpetuates my dysfunction. Um, I have permission to share this. And just so you guys know, I, I, uh, uh, my, my wife and I are wired in, in completely different ways. And uh, I have her permission to share this story. And she personally is one of the most godly people I've ever met in my entire life. Um, when my wife and I early on were, like we were headed towards I, if we had stayed on that road, I'd, I don't think we'd be together now. And uh, wanting to uh, one-up her, uh, we went to bed at the same time one night. And uh, in my attempt to show her how I'm right with God and she's not, I offered, why don't we pray together before we go to bed, thinking that, of course, she's going to say no. And then I'm like, see, I'm trying. You're not. Uh, I get another point is how that was going to go. And in, in her prayer, her prayer was actually, got, it wasn't change my husband because he's being a total jerk right now, which I was. Her prayer was, God, change me and help me become the wife that Sean needs. And that, that broke me. And, and it, was, it was God's movement in her heart that, that rescued our marriage on more than one occasion. Uh, after our third child, though, uh, she went through a period of about two years where she struggled really badly with depression. And 
Uh, this isn't uncommon uh, to go through some type of postpartum depression. She went to a doctor and she started going to counseling. And uh, if you're struggling with that, by the way, I think smart people do reach out to other people. The Bible says there's two things that come from a multitude of counselors. Uh, wisdom is found in the multitude of counselors and safety is found in the multitude of counselors. Uh, if you're not willing to open up to other people smarter than you, uh, you're gonna keep making stupid decisions. All right, you're gonna, you're gonna keep making stupid decisions. So my wife, she did that. She did both of those things, but it, it just wasn't filling in the gaps. And somebody, I think it was the counselor, it might've been somebody else. It may have even come from God's Holy Spirit speaking into her heart. She started uh, reading through the book of Psalms, but, but she was in a very, very un, unhealthy place personally. And then, you know, trying to put on a happy face whenever me or the kids were around. And, but there's only so long you can do that, right? Like you, you can't fake being okay forever when you're not okay. And uh, I asked her, I said, can you like give me a couple of like, like tell me how you felt about that. And so I asked her that this past week and she told me I could share this with you. She said, uh, I wasn't grateful because I didn't have what everybody else had. So the, gra the gratitude had nothing to do with what she had, the, the lack of gratitude, sorry, the lack of gratitude had nothing to do with what she had. It had everything to do with what other people had that she, she didn't have. And that was contributing to her downward cycle. And then she said that in her head, she could objectively say, I have a husband who loves me. I have kids that are amazing. And so she said this. She said, uh, my life was fine, but it wasn't enough because I couldn't find a way to appreciate what I had. And like that's, that's what, but we all get to that place. I just think that she was able to put it in really good words for me. And, and when we stop being grateful, we, we start like slipping in our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and then even in our own personal mental health, which then has an impact on our, on our physical health. There's a guy in the Bible who goes through way worse than anybody in here has ever experienced. His name is Job. How many of you guys have ever heard of the phrase, the patience of Job? Like you don't have to be religious to have heard that phrase before. And it comes from a real person uh, whose story is in the Bible. And this guy loses everything. He loses his income. Uh, he loses uh, his herds, uh, he, you right, like his flocks and herds. He loses all of them. And then as if that wasn't enough to lose all of his income, to lose all of his wealth, to lose all of his source of income, to like, to like be, like he's a very wealthy man who then like loses everything. Uh, one of his kids has a birthday and invites all the other kids over and their house collapses and every one of them dies. And he finds all, he finds out about all of this on one day. So that when he woke up that morning, his life is perfect. When he goes to bed that night, he has absolutely nothing. And his wife is saying, just curse God and die and get it over with. So he might have wished she was in that house too. But <laughs> he's got this friend. And he's been complaining. And uh, his heart's like starting to turn like, like it's, it's not going to healthy places, as you can imagine. As probably every one of our hearts would do also. And uh, his friend's name is Eliphaz or Eliphaz, Eliphaz. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how to say his name, but in, in Job chapter five, verse two, here's his story. He says, uh, surely resentment destroys the fool and jealousy kills the simple. That, that's his rebuke to Job. He said, uh, resentment, dude, your, your heart, like you're not in a good place, dude. Like your, your heart's going bad and resentment, it destroys the fool. He's like, it's making a fool out, like stop, like, you are becoming your own worst, like you're sabotaging, you're, like you're adding on top of this, like, like darkness over everything in your heart. Like you're, you're compounding your problem with the way that you're looking at this problem. Like it's, it's your perspective that's making all of this even worse. So resentment destroys the fool and jealousy kills the simple. He said, I've seen that fools may be successful for the moment, but then comes sudden disaster. Their children are abandoned from help and they're crushed in court and keeps going on. In verse six, he says, but evil does not spring. He says, he says I, I see even fools succeed at some, sometimes, but eventually their foolishness cups, catches up to them. Verse six says, but evil does not spring from the soil. It doesn't come out of nowhere is what he says. And troubles do not sprout from the earth. People are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. So what Eliphaz begins to teach Job is that resentment and jealousy rob you of gratitude and make a fool of you. And this doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from the sin. 
in our hearts. It's the lack of gratitude. It's the not focusing on the water that is in the glass. And then Eliphaz gives them the solution in Job chapter 5, verse 8 through 9. In Job 5, 8 through 9, it says, if I were you, he said, I would go to God and present my case to him. That's what I would do. If I was in your place, like I, I wouldn't just sit here and, and hate and, and bitterness and like, like, bro, like your heart is becoming cancer. He says, here's what I would do if I was in your place. I, I would take this directly to God. I'd present my case to him because God does great things too marvelous to understand and he performs countless miracles. That's, that's what God does. And that's what my, my wife did in, 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 her, in her sadness. Uh, she knew she couldn't keep going this way. So what she began to do is, and she'll tell you, like if you're a friend of hers, uh, like I don't want everybody who's not already a friend of hers to go line up for counseling or anything like that. But uh, if, you're, if you're a friend of hers, you, you, you may have talked with her about this. And there, that was a period of time where she was even ang angry at God. But what she did was she didn't turn her back on God. She turned toward him. She let her depression be the thing that pushed her toward God, not away. She got a composition notebook, and uh, she started going through the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1, right? Uh, and, then, and then Psalm 2. And then what she does is then she took each psalm and she, wrote, she rewrote them like, if I was to write this, how would I have said this? And she would rewrite those psalms in her own words as a prayer back to God, is what she did. Now, that not, not, I, love, I love the psalms, and, and she loves them even, even more. But David was this warrior poet, which is kind of like a, a contradiction, right? Like, David, David, David was the guy who was the star of, like, Gladiator, but he was also the star of a Hallmark movie. Like, that's David, right? He's in The Notebook, uh, right, and he's in Mission Impossible. Those should not share the same actors, uh, but that is King David. So he's he's he, he's like killing Goliath, and then and then like he's playing the harp for King Saul, is what he's he plays plays like. <laughs> homeboy played a harp. That is not a guy you would pick to back you up in the schoolyard fight. The guy who plays a harp, uh, but that's that's David and. His psalms read like this. There's times where he's like, God, I'll, like, I'll, I'll praise you forever. And then, and then there are other psalms, and he goes, God, why don't you even care about me anymore? Now, I'm, if I'm God, I'm going, we're going to leave that one out of the Bible, right? Like, that one's complicated. There's no resolution to this one, David. Like, I don't like this one because it doesn't, it doesn't wrap up nicely before the end of the movie here. Like, you left it on a cliffhanger of sadness, but God allowed all of that to stay in the scriptures because I don't think God's intimidated by any of your feelings. Even if you're doubting God, I think you should talk to God about that. I've done that. I've been on a walk, a prayer walk, ironically, where things weren't going right and all I'm focused on is all the water that's not in my glass. I'm saying, God, I don't even think you're there. Like, I, like, I don't even, like sometimes I don't even think you exist. And then I start laughing because I'm telling God to his face that he doesn't exist. Like, but I'm still talking to him, right? It's, I, don't think, I don't think God's intimidated by your doubt. I don't think God is threatened by your lack of faith. God's not up in heaven going, oh, crap, angels, come up with a plan. Sean's not sure if he trusts me anymore. Like, God's pretty secure in his own identity. You know what I mean? Uh, so he, and he's got big shoulders. He can, he can handle you. He can handle you. And he can handle all of that. But what you've got to do is you've got to allow those things to push you toward him, not, not away. And then over the course of, I want to say a year, my wife filled up, I don't know how many journals with just, and what began to happen is as she journaled through the scriptures, God brought healing and centeredness to her heart. And she's become like this emotional anchor in our family, right? Like, like I, I'm, I'm still manic, and, and she's the one, like, she's the tether is what she is in our, in our family. And that didn't happen on accident. Like, I don't think she was naturally born to be that emotionally secure, right? I'm just saying that's the work of God in her heart when she began working on her heart. But I think every one of us could, could do that. 
if we saw gratitude as the antidote. When we leaned into God, what we would find is the second thing, and that's that gratitude will give you peace. Eliphaz goes on to say that when we trust that God loves us and has given us what we need, it changes how we feel about everything. Job chapter 5, verse 10, he says, listen, God's the one who gives rain for the earth and water for the fields. He gives prosperity to the poor, and he protects those who suffer. When I become grateful for the water that I do have, I recognize where all the water I have came from, that he's the one who's capable of putting more water in there. Like it changes my perspective of God. So that even when I have less water in my glass than I had before, I can say, God, I'm thankful that it ain't bone dry, right? Like there's at least moisture in here, God, and you're the source of moisture. <laughs> That's all life has is saying. Like regardless of how much water you feel you have in your cup, I know where the water comes from. James said this, every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness of attitude or shadow of turning. That's what James says. Like all of the, Acts chapter two says, the goodness of God leads to repentance. If you're distant from God, he doesn't hurt you until you turn to him. That's not what the scripture says. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. What God is, is he's like the spurned pursuer who begins to woo our hearts back toward him. I think the biggest tool that Satan has ever used is robbing us of everything that God has blessed us with and then got us to blame God for that. We look at God as the source of evil in our life. Isn't that crazy? We blame the one person who's trying to keep us from drowning. We blame him for being the person trying to hold our head under, which is nuts. Sometimes jealousy comes from a fear that because I don't have what they have, I won't have enough. So Eliphaz reminds Job of the source of everything that he has. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. And here's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, uh, don't worry about anything. Don't you hate that piece of advice? <laughs> Thanks. Just solved my problem right there. Good job. Hey, don't, hey, don't. Have you ever gone to somebody and they say, yeah, just don't worry about it. Okay, uh, great. Can you lift up your chin so I can get your throat a little bit? Like, I want a throat punch. Like, lift up your chin. I don't want to hurt your teeth, right? So just, just don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. I freaking hate you. Like, don't tell me don't worry about it. Like, that don't help. Well, here's what Paul says next. He says, instead, he says, pray about everything. Okay, so what's the connection? One becomes the trigger for the other. That's what happens. Paul says, listen, there are going to be things that you worry about, things that stress you out, things that make you anxious. How many of you guys have ever had something that caused you stress? Raise your hand. I just want to see who's not sleeping. Okay, this is 100% of us. Paul says that should become a trigger for you now to start including God. Like, you're worried because this Thursday you're going to see somebody that you've been avoiding since this Thursday last year. Right? For some of us. Uh, Paul says every time between now and then where that pops into your heart, that becomes a trigger for you to take it to who? God. So what you fear should be a trigger to get you to do what? To pray. What causes you anxiety is a trigger to get you to do what? Pray. What causes you fear should be the trigger to get you to what? To pray. He says, don't worry about anything. What I want you to do is let that thing be a trigger for you to pray. What am I praying to God about? Whatever it was that was just causing me to poop my pants. But that's what I'm going to talk to God about. That's exactly what I'm going to do. It pushes me towards Jesus. That's what gratitude does. It pushes me towards Jesus where I find peace, and that's what he says next. He says, tell God, this is the second half of verse 6. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. So listen, you're allowed to tell God anything that you need. God, I want, I want more water in my glass. I want more water in my glass. Go ahead. You're allowed to ask God for more water in the glass on one condition. What's the next part of that verse say? That you thank him for the water you already have in your glass. So go ahead. Ask God for anything you want on the condition that you thank him for what you already have. So if you'll go to God and thank him for what you already have, you're allowed to ask him for anything you want. On the condition, man, I got to, like, this, is not, this does not come naturally to us. Because when I go to God because I want something, 
I am not thinking at all about everything I already have. Right? Neither are you. I, I see everybody going, every, everybody's doing this. Like we all, we all know. And he says, you can ask anything you want on one condition, that you thank God for everything he's already done for you. If you'll thank God for everything he's already done, then you can ask him for anything you need. And then the next verse says, verse seven says, what's the first word in verse seven? What's the first word? Everybody say it together. Then, then, then. Then it is because of this, then this. If this, then that. Are you with me? So everything that comes after this is conditional on everything that happened before this. So if you will allow those triggers, right, those anxieties, fears, worries, concerns, the things that stress you out or keep you depressed, if you allow those things to be the trigger, the motivation to get you to move toward God, then go ahead and ask God anything you want on the condition that, right, that you thank him for everything he's already done, then here's what will happen if you do that. Then you will experience God's what? Which is what you ain't got. Then you will experience peace. Isn't that what we want? I just want to be settled. Like, I don't have to be happy all the time. But isn't it okay for me to want to just be okay all the time? Like, is that too much to just, to just get to a place where I can just be okay? Like, I don't have to be great. I just don't want it to suck forever. Here's, here's the antidote, and here's the ingredient for peace, right? It's the thing that's causing me so much discomfort and pain in my life that becomes a trigger to go to God. And when I'm going to God, I'm talking to him about all of these things that I feel that I lack or that are hurting me. And then I'm wrapping that up with gratitude for everything God's already done. And it's that wrapping that whole ball up in a coat of gratitude that gets me the place where I can go, so I guess I'm okay for now, right? I'm okay. That's what, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that you can understand in his peace, will guard your heart and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. Sometimes it's in these circumstances that I learn to rest in the goodness of God, and that is when I also experience his peace. And sometimes I don't learn to rest in God until there's something that's upsetting me that teaches me that lesson. My dad uh, was a pastor of a church in Delaware. Actually, he's one of the oldest churches in Delaware. The First Baptist Church of Newcastle, Delaware. It's like a 300-year-old church. And he was a trustee of a college. And the college president resigned unexpectedly. And uh, my dad wasn't the chairman of the trustees. He was just a trustee. But in looking for a candidate, they were like, holy cow, I think, I think Ron would, Ron is my dad's name. Ron would do a, a great job. And they, so the trustees approached my dad and they said, Ron, uh, we'd like you to consider being the interim president for the college. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm honored by that. I just need to talk to my wife about it. They said, but we think that the interim president needs to be a full-time president, which means that my dad would have to resign pastoring the First Baptist Church of Newcastle, Delaware, in order to go be a temporary president at a college, which is a really bad career move. Except that they said, you're at the top, like, we really feel like you're the right guy for this job also. We just have to go through the whole process. So we can't name you as president. We need you to be interim, but we're telling you that there's nobody else that we're looking at. So when that was announced, there was a group of people who felt that that was something that my dad was manipulating behind the scene. And so that got a group of people to say, anybody but Ron, right? Because it was like, oh, you're, oh, I see what's happening here. You're the trustee and you've been working for, you're probably the reason why that guy quit and then you're probably the reason why they asked you and then you probably, like all of these different things led to there being a, a, really, a really powerful group of people within that trustees that was anybody but Ron. And uh, so at the end of a year and a half, um, my dad lost his job and now he's 68 years old and now he's a pastor. So he puts out his resume and all that kind of stuff. But when a church loses a pastor because he retires or dies or whatever, they're not thinking, hey, let's pick another dude who's almost about to die. Not that 68's almost about to die. That's the extreme exaggerated viewpoint, right? But like when a church doesn't have a pastor and they want a new pastor, what are they looking for? They're looking for a pastor who's what? Right. 
They want some guy in their 30s. They're not thinking, hey, let me get a guy who's only going to be here for a couple of years until he retires, who might have already could have retired. That guy, they want somebody a lot younger. So then what's he going to do, right? My dad can just see the water just start to like, it's just, he's got a hole in his glass somewhere and that water is just draining fast, right? And then, um, and then I'm, I'm watching all of this from the outside and I'm praying. Dear God, you, you need to do something. You need to do something. Like, you need to do Like, my dad's done everything that he thought you asked him to do his whole life. And even if he picked the wrong decision, he picked the wrong decision for the right reason. And you got to do something, right? My dad gets to a place where he's in between ministry positions. And uh, not that this is a bad thing to do, but my dad, in his six, late 60s, uh, is, is driving for Uber to provide for my mom. Now, there's nothing wrong with driving for Uber, but if you have a doctorate, in theology, you didn't get your doctorate so that you can drive Uber. You know what I'm saying? Like nothing wrong with, like do what you got to do to provide for your family, right? And there's a lot, and it's, it's actually, my dad really liked the job. It was a good job because it was really flexible and it was enough to provide for his family. So it was actually a really great job, it's, especially if you're looking to do a side hustle. That's a great job to fill in the gaps and that kind of stuff. But, but anyway, I'm watching God not do what my dad's been asking God to do. And, and, and it's doing more damage, I think, to my faith than my dad's. Like, because the one person that this wasn't rocking at all was who? My dad. My dad, this whole time, he, all he's doing is talking about the water that's already in his glass, talking about the water that's already in his glass. And I'm going, but look at all the water that's out of your glass. Like, I was the opposite of Eliphaz. I was, I was, the, I was the bad influence on my, on my dad's faith. But I got to watch God then, through a series of events, found out, that he's now the, my dad is the executive pastor at um, Harbor Church in, in uh, uh, Hyannis, down on the Cape. And my mom and dad bought a house this summer in, in um, uh, it's like $20 million for a two-bedroom house, like all the other houses on the Cape. Um, that's an exaggeration also. But they've got a house in Dennis now. And my mom and dad perfectly fit the Cape. It's perfect. And then my dad found out that Josh delayed starting the church by two years. And my dad was like, oh, you're the reason I had to drive Uber, Right? And all that was happening behind the scenes was God was just setting the table and just hadn't called my dad to dinner yet. God was setting the table, right? And that's what I got to see God do in my dad's life also. The Apostle Paul is in prison when he writes this next thing in Philippians chapter four. Now get this, he's in prison and he's never getting out of prison. Actually, he does get out of prison for one day and it's to walk outside the city of Rome where he's beheaded. So he's never going to be a free man ever again. And he writes this, Philippians chapter four, verse 11. Not that I was ever in need, bro. How about, yeah, <laughs> what do you mean? No, not like I was ever really in need. I can think of a few things that you need right now. See, because I'm looking at all the water that's not in his glass because he's in prison. And the apostle Paul's looking at the water that is in his glass because he still has a pen and paper and because he's still breathing. You see what I'm saying? I'm looking at the water not in his glass. The Apostle Paul's looking at the water that is in his glass. And he says, uh, not that I've ever been in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. He's, his focus is on whatever he has. That's the secret to being content. It's focusing on whatever you have. It's the obsession with the water in the glass, not the water not in the glass. He said, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I do have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or with little, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. Right? Till death do me part. For I can do all of those things. How? Because of Jesus who gives me the strength. That's where the peace comes from. His foundation for peace was a gratitude rooted in the providence of God. It was his faith in the goodness of Jesus that gave him strength to be grateful even when others couldn't see him. Jesus, that is. And that leads me to the third and final thing that's this. Gratitude always leads me back to Jesus. Paul allowed his difficulties to lead him back to Jesus. My dad allowed his joblessness to lead him back to Jesus. And Billy Jane used her depression to push her back to Jesus. And each of them found in Jesus the means to change their heart because they changed the way they looked at where they were at and what they had. 
There's a story of Jesus coming across 10 lepers, and lepers had lost everything. Lepers, they're not, they, they, they have to quit their jobs. They have to sell their property. They have to move out of the city. They can never be hugged ever again. No physical affection. I guess unless it would be from another leper, maybe. But they lose everything. And the Torah says that if they come back into the city or if they're around somebody who does not have leprosy, the punishment for that is to be taken outside of the city and stoned to death with rocks. It's, it's, a, it's a death penalty for doing that because you've just brought death to all these other people by infecting them with your leprosy. This is in Luke chapter 17. As Jesus entered a village there, 10 men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and he said, go show yourself to the priest. That's what he says. They all have leprosy and what he, he doesn't heal them. What he says is, stand up and go in the city and go find the priest. Now, wait a minute. What you're asking me to do is impossible. And that's sometimes how we feel. Well, God, what you're saying, Sean, is impossible. I can't do this. Like, I want God to fix me first, and then I'll be grateful. I want God to take away the pain, then I'll be thankful. I want God to fix my marriage, then I'll be grateful. I want God to get me married, then I'll be thankful. I want God to get me out of this marriage, then I'll be thankful. I want, right, I want this, this, and this, and this, and then I'll be. But what Jesus told the 10 lepers was, I want you to stand up, and I want you to go to the priest. And they had to decide right then with their leprosy, looking down, they still have leprosy. They have to decide, do I trust Jesus enough to do what he says, even if what he says doesn't make sense to me right now? And I think that's the same choice you have. You don't think that there's any way that you can find peace until God fixes everything, but maybe he's not going to until you start trusting him first. That's what these 10 lepers had to do. So here's what it says they did. He looked at them and he said, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were healed of their leprosy. As they obeyed, they were healed of their leprosy. As you learn to be grateful, as you pray prayers of thanksgiving, then you begin to be healed. As then they weren't healed until they got up. They had to choose whether or not they trusted Jesus in their trouble. And when they said yes, then they were healed. And I think you have, to you have to decide whether or not you trust Jesus enough to obey him also. So I'm gonna ask a few questions as we wrap it up. The first is this. In what areas of your life are you losing peace? What is in your head that you can't get out of your head that's keeping you awake at night? Where's the, what's robbing you of your happiness and your contentment? Think of the thing, because I think there's something you're going to have to do in that area of your life to demonstrate your trust in God before God brings resolution in that area of your life. Like in some way, in that area of your life, you're going to have to do something, you're going to have to get up and go to the priest before he fixes it. Like you're going to have to demonstrate, I trust you, God, with the water that is in my glass. Even if it's less than the amount of water I don't have. In my, I didn't say that right. Even if you don't fix this right now, I'm going to be grateful for what I have and where I am right now anyway. That's that getting up and going to the priest before he takes away the leprosy. Like you, you've got to dem like you've got you've got to move. You can't stay here. You can't sit in this forever. And no one can do this for you. And I think God's reaching out to you, telling you, you need to get up and go to the priest. You need to come to me. Like you need to allow that thing that's causing you so much fear, anxiety, pressure, and stress to be the thing that pushes you toward me. But instead you've been using that as an excuse to run from me, and you've got to change that. You've got to go buy a composition notebook at CVS on the way home, and tonight before you go to bed, you're going to need to write down a list of all of the things that God has already done for you before you ask for anything that you need from him. That's what you need to do. Maybe you've um, sinned against the holy God. Jesus, God's son, has offered his own innocence as a payment for your sin, your guilt, and you feel distant from God. So the idea of talking to God about any of this is a foreign idea to you because you're, you don't really feel close to God at all. I think your prayer is, God, take away my sin. I'm willing to accept what Jesus did as a payment for me, and I want to be made right with you. Take away all the sin out of my heart. 
Some of you guys have just never asked God permission or given God permission to change your heart. Maybe that's your prayer. God, I'm allowing you to change my emotions, to do anything you want on the inside of me because everything on the outside of me ain't working. Can you make that your prayer? Or if you're already a devoted follower of Jesus, maybe you're more focused on the things God hasn't done for you than the things he already has. And truthfully, you need to flip that, man, right? Because some of us, we can, get, we can become brats when it comes to our relationship with God. You ever seen a kid not thankful for what they got? They always want more, 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 more. I wonder if some of us have become that to God, right? And then if you're in a great place right now, I think your prayer is, God, let me be the source of somebody else's encouragement. Like, I think that if God's fixed, like, if your glass is running over, then, bro, share the freaking wealth. Like, if you got, like, happiness on the inside of you, like, like leverage that. Be a blessing and encouragement. Lift somebody else up, right? Like, be kind and compassionate and listen for a change. Quit telling your story all the time and let them tell theirs. You know what I mean? Like, be a source of goodness in somebody else's heart. Put a little bit of water in their cup, right? Maybe God will use you that way. If you would, bow your head, close your eyes, and we'll all talk to God. I'm not sure which one of those three points of view most fit where you're at. If you're disconnected from God, then your prayer would be, right? If you already know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, then your prayer is, God, I want to be forgiven for those sins. I want you to take all of the sin out of my heart. I do. I want you to give me a clean slate. I accept what Jesus did as a payment for my sin, and I don't want it anymore. God, take this out of me. I'm willing to be the person that you want me to be, and you, you, have, you have my full permission. Change my whole heart. Can you make that your prayer? Save me from my sin, I'm all in. I'm your man, I'm your girl for life. Dear God, I'm your man, I'm your girl. You got me. If you're already God's kid, but truthfully, you're more focused on the, the water that ain't in your glass, can you just confess that to God? God, I'm sorry that I haven't been more passionately thankful for all the water that you have put in my glass. And be specific about something. And if you're in a really healthy place, like my cup runneth over, that, thank God, we're not always like that, but you're like that right now. That's an awesome thing. God, I'm thankful that my cup is full. This next week, when we hang out with my family, help me to, like, let your Holy Spirit speak into my heart and point out somebody that I can encourage before the end of the day. Let me be a source of happiness for somebody else, God, please. That would be phenomenal. And I'm going to ask everybody to go through this guided gratitude prayer. I want you to thank God for your family right now. Do that. God, thank you for my family. And some of us have healthier families than others, but the family you have is the one that made you who you are. God, I'm thankful for what I did get from them. Can you, can you, can you thank God for your family? Thank God for your friends. And name them, God, I'm thankful for. Some of us will get to places where we go, I don't have no friends. And you know that's a lie. There's people out there that do care about you. You're just focused on the, all the ones that don't. But thank God for the ones that do. Can you do that? Thank God for this church family. It's the healthiest church I've ever been a part of. I'm grateful for it. I hope you are. Maybe you've gotten some encouragement from other people who are here, your friends who are following Jesus with you here at this church family. Thank God for your health. Thank God for his provision. Thank God for your job. If you don't have a job, thank God that there's still food in your stomach. He's making things happen somehow. Thank him. And all the threats to your happiness in life, can you thank God for those threats and ask God to help you see them as an opportunity to grow in your confidence in him? God, let your will be done in each one of our hearts so that your will can be done through each one of our lives. This is our most sincere prayer that we ask in the name of Jesus and we all say together, amen.